Chapter 9 of Cordelia the Magnificent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brannon Brakefield Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott Chapter 9 Cordelia's Place in the Sun Mr. Franklin's pleasant manner had had its carefully calculated effect upon Cordelia. As she drove uptown, she was thinking what a gentlemanly, consideredly appreciative man he was. It was a pleasure to do one's best for such a man. As far as she could, she was going to be nice to him. In a social way, too. Perhaps he would like that. Cordelia felt immensely pleased. Within herself, she was celebrating a national holiday that was all her own. The sense of power she had always had, the consciousness of her ability to do anything she set out to do, had just proved both its authenticity and its reliability. She'd achieved what she said she would achieve, and she would achieve all the rest. The memory of the dingy oblivion which had threatened her and her family only a week or two before now returned to her, and she smiled. For a little while that menace, by its strangeness and unexpectedness, had had her floundering. But now she had risen to the emergency. How she had met this situation, saved it, and conquered it. People, of course, could never know how she mastered this emergency. But if they did know, they would certainly admit that she deserved in all seriousness that old half-humorous title of Cordelia the Magnificent. This day, on the whole, was one of the most satisfying days of Cordelia's life. She was going to have far greater days. She knew that. But on this day, she was filled with the glorious, expansive sense of being her full self. And so, with this sense of rich success of having earned a day off, she enjoyed every moment that she moved with the heavy sluggish traffic up Fifth Avenue, frequently held stationary at the curb by the commands of the semaphore towers. Her slow progress was a subdued, discreet ovation, the unofficial parade of a first citizeness just what she had long been accustomed to whenever she moved through a crowd. Shoppers in halted cars gazed across at her. Women on the sidewalk turned to stare and whispered eagerly to their companions. She knew just what they were all saying, even though their syllables did not carry to her ears. Look, driving that red car. That's Cordelia Marlowe, the cleverest and handsomest young woman in New York society. You'd know her from her pictures in the papers. She certainly looks the leader they say she is. She was pleasantly conscious she looked her part. She liked these people, all of them. Yes, this was a wonderful day. Under this pleasant scrutiny, she was waiting in the interlocked traffic near 40th Street when a man stepped to the side of her car, his head bared, his face a close-up of delight, his mouth a fount of conversation. It was Kyle Brandon, the motion picture director-producer. Cordelia was glad to see him. This Kyle Brandon, in his youth merely a poor relation of a socially important family, that still very important lady, Mrs. Phepps Morse, was his aunt, had become a successful portrait painter of smart ladies. Then he had gone into motion pictures as an art director. He had been the right man at the right time, and now, still under forty and looking even younger, he was reputed worth his millions and was president and director-in-chief of the famous Brandon Pictures. He had what few other of big motion picture producers possess. Social position. 
His social position was perhaps of the second order, but such as it was, it was indubitably genuine. He had a pink chubbiness of face, and he exuded vitality and confidence. If in manner he were a bit inclined toward the grandiose, that was doubtless the effect upon him of his glamorous business. Cordelia was again aware that the crowded street was staring, that the people were excitedly whispering that those two were the famous movie man, Kyle Brandon, and the famous society beauty, Cordelia Marlowe. And she sensed that Brandon was conscious of this public attention, and that he liked it. She had an amused flashing thought that he was sorry that one of his cameramen was not over there on the sidewalk shooting this effective picture. This is a piece of luck, my meeting you, Brandon was saying in his brisk, confident, ingratiating manner. I was going to write you and ask you for a talk about something my aunt, Mrs. Phipps Morse, has wished on me. She's giving a pageant, big thing of its sort, at her place near Huntington early in September. She's trying to raise money for devastated France, or some French milk fund, or French orphans. Don't know just what. And I don't know yet what the pageant's going to be. She told me there was some fellow, some poet, writing it for her. My aunt asked me to put the show on for her. Be director general, and of course, I had to say yes. But this much I do know about that show, Miss Marlowe. I certainly want you in it. And if it shapes up right, I'll probably want you for the lead. And if I'm any good as director, I'll see that you get my best. How about it? Cordelia could not help being pleased, used though as she was to being singled out. A charity show. A society show. Staged by the great Brandon. That should be an event indeed. I'll be glad to. That is, if you think I can do it. Of course you can. Then that's all settled for the present. Kyle Brandon could not long keep away from what he at times called his business, and at other times reverently called his art. Tell you what, Miss Marlowe, why should you and I stop with this pageant? Ever think of going into pictures? Cordelia laughed. <laughs> pictures? I can't act. How do you know? I bet you could. And with me directing you, I know you could. He appraised her with admiring eyes. Why, with me directing you, picking your story, getting you the right cast, launching you with the right publicity, you'd be a knockout. Society star deserts social life to become screen star. Just think of that publicity. You'd be a surefire knockout. Cordelia was pleasantly flattered, but her response was a soft laugh of unbelief. There had been a playful quality in Brandon's words, for he knew that such a person as Cordelia would not seriously consider anything in his business power to offer. Nonetheless, behind his half-jocular proposition, he had a most serious and long-cherished idea. There would be publicity, wonderful publicity, if he could get hold of a famous society beauty who could also act. What couldn't he do with her and the smart society dramas which were one of his specialties? An actress who knew how to be a real lady when she acted a lady, and whom the eager public knew to be a real lady instead of those damned cursing temperamental ex-waitresses and ex-chorus girls. Oh, I hardly thought you'd take it seriously. Not with what you have before you he conceded. But it's nothing to be laughed at. The money in's not bad. I'm not paying Mary Pickford salaries, but among my people there are three girls working for me. All really nobodies. Not one of whom had a fifth of those qualities to start with that you have right now. 
and of these three, each girl cleared over 150,000 last year. So much as that, breathed Cordelia, mentally comparing the amount with her own income. Not bad, is it, for just letting someone point a camera at your face? It's worth thinking about, anyhow. Perhaps even you may someday change your mind. I want you to promise me one thing in case you ever do. Yes? Promise to give Brandon Pictures the first chance at you. I'll offer you a better contract than any other producer. Again, Cordelia laughed. I guess I can promise that with perfect safety. You just bear this in mind. I have your promise. Listen now. And he smiled with that assurance, with that omniscience and omnipotence, which are the gift and aura of motion picture directors and presidents. If you'd come with me, you'd soon be a star, writing your own salary check, and the billboards everywhere would be saying, Kyle Brandon presents Cordelia Marlowe and her heart's desire. You would be a sensation. Wait and see. Cordelia laughed again. Traffic began to move. You're coming out to Gladys Norworth's for the weekend, she called. I'm staying there now. Then of course I'll be there, to sign you up. As she rolled slowly northward along the curb, Cordelia saw that which made her start. This was Mitchell, walking south. His gaze was fixed casually over her head. She was certain he had seen her, but he passed without meeting her eyes. She had thought herself prepared for anything from Mitchell but she was nonetheless surprised to see the butler strolling along Fifth Avenue in smartly tailored blue serge with malacca stick and yellow gloves and looking as much the well-groomed man of the world as she might see that morning upon the avenue. Yes, as Mr. Franklin had said, Mitchell was decidedly a man to be most carefully watched and studied. For a moment her mind went back to the little scene of that night before, his letting her in when she had thought herself locked out the collapse of her palsied legs, her absurd sprawl upon the floor, the strong hands beneath her arms as he had helped her up the stairway. And yes, that's something he had started to tell or ask of her, and then had checked himself. What could that something have been? At twelve o'clock, Cordelia was in their closed-up Park Avenue apartment, talking to her mother. Miss Marla was a kindly, warm-hearted lady, and she had the greatest affection and concern for her two daughters. She was no more than forty-five, her carefully coiffed yellow hair scarcely showed its gray, and she might have appeared a much younger and more elastic person except for her formal bearing. All her life she had functioned within the rigid and narrow frontiers of what a lady can do who has been brought up in the profound respect of her own position and the position of a few others who were her equals. It had been hard work to maintain that appearance of unruffled stateliness these last dozen years hard work with unguessed cares, to maintain her daughters in such a position as would guarantee their going on in such a position. Miss Marlowe had been coming into town anyway that day, so Cordelia's message had not inconvenienced her. The talk of the two was almost wholly upon family matters. Miss Marlowe explained that she was in the city primarily on a shopping expedition, which was to equip her younger daughter with additional summer accessories. Dancing dresses were the main item, which Lily insisted were necessities for any girl of fifteen who was really, according to their standards of her day, a grown-up young lady. Fortunately, so Miss Marlowe said, 
she could get these dancing dresses at one of the shops where her credit was good for a year or more, and thus the purchases would be no immediate drain upon the family income. This led to finances, that eternal Marlowe topic, and for a time they talked finance, and very naturally finances led to Mr. Franklin. Miss Marlowe was eloquent on the subject of Mr. Franklin. He had been most thoughtful, most reassuring, so kindly reassuring that she now looked upon the future without a single financial worry, except, of course, the care required to live upon such a straightened income as $30,000. It was a pleasure to have one's affairs in the hands of such an able and considerate gentleman. He had written her several extremely clear letters, and had been kind enough to come and see her twice when she had been in town and explain matters to her. Miss Marlowe was well pleased with the world and well pleased with herself. I hope you appreciate, Cordelia, what I have done for you in this matter. She continued her tone of self-approval. If I hadn't had the wisdom to see what Mr. Franklin could do for me, where would we all be today? And what would have happened to you? That was one of Miss Marlowe's little traits, to forget how matters started, and to assume that they had originated in her maternal care. Cordelia managed to keep a straight face. As for Miss Marlowe, she was certainly grateful to Mr. Franklin. That was why she and Lily were lunching with him that day. One could not show such a man too great appreciation. Mr. Franklin was the bright spot of Miss Marlowe's conversation. But she had her worry. Lily. It was a dance or something else every night with Lily. She had suddenly become unmanageable. And the way Lily had begun to drink. Miss Marlowe had always been accustomed to seeing wine drunk by ladies and gentlemen, as ladies and gentlemen should drink wine. But in all her life, she had never seen such quantities of liquor drunk as her being drunk by the children. Drinking was becoming the most popular childish game. Why, Lily now carried her own pocket flask. The flask was a present. Miss Marlowe refused to give money or liquor to fill it, but her friends kept Lily supplied. And two, Lily did swear such an awful lot. It would be a relief when Lily was in Harcourt Hall, where she wouldn't be regulated by discipline. In the meantime, couldn't Cordelia do something? To Miss Marlowe, Lily seemed a brand new problem for which there was no answer. Cordelia went into the bedroom where Lily, having changed into a fresh frock, was now carefully applying lipstick. Lily was slight, with dark bobbed hair, and had that pert audacity, that shameless inclination to shock, which sometimes seemed the dominant instinct and delight of present-day feminine fifteen. Hello, Cord, old girl. Don't touch me, for I don't want to be must. Going to meet my best beau. See here, infant. How about all this boozing you're doing these days? Mother been telling tales? Never you mind. Better cut that stuff out before it gets you. Oh, don't be a damned pill. If a fellow doesn't drink her share, the crowd doesn't want her along. How much do you drink? Just keep step, that's all. Lily. Don't be a gloom, Cord. Besides, you just please remember that I've got a reputation to live up to. I'm the sister of the great Cordelia Marlowe. And that means I've got to travel. So there. Cordelia bit her lip. She wanted to slap the cheek of this pert piece of sophistication. Cordelia herself was a contemporary of the flapper. 
but some quality in her had restrained her from that self-possessed audacity, that unashamed directness, that itch to shock the world, that practice of signaling the world to just watch your so wild oats, which to Cordelia's mind characterized the flapper when fully developed. If Lily kept her present direction, what would the fledgling be when she reached the flapper maturity of seventeen or eighteen? I can stop boozing if I want to, Lily continued. Can wean myself without anybody's help. Can taper off on one of these infants, what do you call them's? Rubber pacifiers. So there's nothing for you to worry your old bean about. Let's change the subject. I've got a new bow. Now what do you think of that? Even to Cordelia, this newest generation was at times breathtaking. Who is he? Can't claim yet that he's all mine. You may marry him, or mother may beat me out. But I'd rather think he'll prefer little Lily. He's been mighty nice to me. He's our brand new good angel, Mr. Franklin. Cordelia swooped upon Lily, seizing her by either ear. Why, you brazen little imp, she cried. I'll put some sense into you. Uh, ouch! You'll leave me alone! Lily squealed. I know what's the matter with you. Jealous. You want Mr. Franklin to yourself. At this last, Cordelia loosed her hold in exasperated amazement. Miss Marlowe, drawn by the outcry, came in and wanted to know what was the trouble. Lily winked and grinned in an aside at Cordelia, and spoke of having half-murdered herself with a damned old pin. Five minutes later, they were down in the street. All were lunching at the Grantham, but Lily refused Cordelia's invitation to ride in the roadster. She wasn't going to make a mess of her fresh dress by crowding three in that dinky, damned little seat. Besides, she was going to look at hats before they met Mr. Franklin. So away, Lily and Miss Marlowe went in a taxi cab, and Cordelia rode off alone. She would certainly have to do something about Lily's precocious interest in men and drink. Was Lily really serious? or merely trying to be glibly teasing and trying to give herself airs in what she had said about Mr. Franklin. But then Lily was young. Perhaps her manners and practices were no more than a pose. Perhaps she was merely passing through some brief phase of adolescence. Perhaps in a few years she might outgrow it all, or something might happen to her that would tear her loose from, or lift her out of, all such things. Jerry Plimpton was waiting for Cordelia in the lobby of the Grantham. Cordelia hadn't seen Jerry since the evening before she had gone out to Rolling Meadows. Her heart pumped warm pride through all her arteries as he came eagerly, smiling towards her. He was so handsome, so easy of manner, so distinguished. Such a splendid figure of the kind the world just naturally bows to. And when they had moved through the crowded dining room and the table he had reserved, she had an even stronger consciousness than on Fifth Avenue that eyes were following her admiringly and enviously. That people were whispering that there went that famous social beauty, Cordelia Marlowe, and that terribly rich Jerry Plimpton. And what a handsome couple they made. Just being with Jerry, though she knew nothing important was going to be said or done, seemed the proper culmination of an expansive, glorious day. While the luncheon progressed and they talked gaily of nothing in particular, Cordelia definitely came to a decision. Some day she was going to marry Jerry Plimpton. He was personally delightful. 
He had all those splendid accessories which she knew how to use so well, and which would make all the years to come years of unbroken happiness and triumph. And she knew that no woman could fill the place of wife to him. A high place that of his wife, successor to his great mother's glories and traditions, with so much grace and distinction as herself. She knew that Jerry admired Gladys. That was nothing to be wondered at, for Gladys had real looks. She had real position. She had more money than any other young woman Cordelia knew. And her public manner was very agreeable. Only her intimates suspected that Gladys might have her little failings. The possession of Jerry Plimpton and the splendid things he represented indubitably lay between Gladys Norworth and Cordelia Marlowe. And Cordelia did not doubt that she would win out over Gladys, and she now let her full powers express themselves in the pleasant effort to attract Jerry. For the present, of course, it would not be wise to let an open courtship develop. That must wait until she was through with the important business she now had in hand. Till she was free from the necessity of keeping on amicable terms that easily aroused Gladys, who had her own private dreams concerning Jerry. But Cordelia was in no hurry. It suited her perfectly to drift along for a time in this close friendship. Also, Jerry was not the man to be hurried. He regarded marriage too seriously to be likely to be swept incautiously off his feet by any sudden tide of emotion. Jerry would give his judgment ample time to consider any urgent recommendations of his heart. All in all, she was most happy with the situation as it stood. Of course, there was suspense. Great suspense. But when she had decided that her time was ready, then there would be certainty. Again within her was a swift, overwhelming upward rush, as though the whole soul of her were a geyser of gratitude. How great had been her fortune, how great her skill and efforts, that had saved her from going down in disaster two weeks before, that had kept her up here on her old plane of existence, where she could meet Jerry Plimpton. At no time since her escape had her escape seemed so marvelous a blessing as now when she was sitting here smile to smile with Jerry. There came an interruption, Lily advancing on their table, followed by her mother and Mr. Franklin. Cordelia introduced the two men. They bowed and shook hands formally. Just what Mr. Franklin is that, Cordelia? Jerry asked when he and Cordelia were again alone. Cordelia told him about Mr. Franklin. Not quite everything, to be sure. So he's that, Mr. Franklin. And your family's new lawyer mused Jerry. He should prove a real help to you. I've heard quite a bit about him. They say he's an able citizen and a comer. At another table, the irresponsible Lily was whispering, I say, Mr. Franklin, what do you think of that pair? I'll bet you Cordelia marries him. Indeed, remarked Mr. Franklin. He glanced across at Cordelia and Jerry, and his pleasant expression did not change. If appearances count for anything, Miss Lily, you likely win your bet, for they do look a well-matched pair. Cordelia's eye caught Mr. Franklin's gaze upon her. His pleasant look warmed into a pleasant smile. She smiled brightly back. Indeed, she was going to be nice to Mr. Franklin. Yes. This was simply a wonderful day. End of chapter 9